Hello, and welcome to the Planet Beyond podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in uncovering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. For today's episode, we're going to look to the islands of the South Pacific. All people on Earth depend on our oceans. Our oceans cover more than 70% of the planet and produce more than half of the oxygen we breathe. The ocean is, well, a primary source of food for billions of people, a means of transport, and something livelihoods depend upon. But climate change has caused rising sea levels and storms that have been increasing in both severity and frequency, meaning that those who depend on the ocean most of all, the millions of people who live on tiny island states are now threatened by the oceans they depend upon. In this episode, I'm joined by Arthur Webb, a Chief Technical Advisor to the United Nations Development Programme, that's UNDP. He's an expert in coastal adaption and climate change in atoll environments. And by Kirsten Sayers, CEO of Redar Australia, Redar is an NGO that provides practical training to equip responders with the skills they need to respond to humanitarian crisis. So, Arthur, if we can start with you working for the UNDP, we're keen to hear what your experience has been in the South Pacific. Thanks, John. Um, yeah, look, I guess as introductory words, I guess a little bit of background about my, my time in the region. I've worked for some 35 years across the Pacific in all of the countries of the South Pacific other than, than PNG, where I'd love to get one of these days. But there's surprising similarities when you consider exposure to marine hazards and, I guess, the influence of climate change, particularly sea level rise as it applies to coastal communities. And I guess what we have to keep in mind here is that many of our communities are protected by what we would call reef-mediated shorelines. And that means shorelines which are comprised of once living reef debris and shorelines that are protected by living reef edges, uh, which break up wave energy. And then reef debris is broken from those reefs and, and moved to shorelines where, where, where villages, etc., are situated. So when you consider these are very low lying, we have sea level rise, but then when you consider that they are completely dependent on the ongoing productivity structure, et cetera, of living reef ecosystems, we also know that climate change brings extraordinary stress to those. So the situation is extremely dire when you consider coastal vulnerability issues across the region. Can you share with us some kind of statistics we can get our head around? What is the scale of the problem? What I can tell you is that the vast majority of Pacific Island settlements are coastal, that we have three of the world's four atoll nations, and that the vast majority, vast majority of inhabited atolls are all situated in the Pacific. I don't have the exact numbers, but it's an extraordinary proportion of our populations live in immediate conditions of marine hazard exposure and then that includes as well most of our capital cities. That's overlaid also with the Pacific Ring of Fire and volcanic movements 
and it is the region with the most severe cyclones. For most of us, Kirsten, climate change is something that we've, we've, well, we've heard a lot about over the years. And maybe some of us have begun to change our habits, but frankly, you know, the effects are forgotten in day-to-day -day life. From your perspective, how visible are the effects of climate change in, in, in the South Pacific? My role as CEO of Redar is to work with our partners, whether they be UN agencies in the Pacific or with Pacific governments, and also indeed frontline agencies like the International Planned Parenthood Federation or the Pacific Disability Forum, to, to work with these organisations to make sure that Pacific Islanders, the folk themselves, and their governments and the government's institutions are strengthened to prepare for climate change, to adapt, and to mitigate and to, to, to build stronger, more resilient communities, countries and institutions to respond to the disasters that, that are concurrent, compounding and, and consecutive, all of these that are happening. So over the last um, three years, actually, Redar has been working with the Pacific governments and has actually provided 41 years in three years of technical support. And we've done that through 75 deployments through the Australia Assist Program, which is uh, funded by the Australian government. We've worked in eight Pacific Island countries, 23 deployments with government, 33 with UN agencies. And it's great to have you here, Arthur. UNDP is one of our core partners in the region. It's very clear to me that we're having in the Pacific more frequent and severe disasters. And look, I'm, I'm based in Australia, but Australia is feeling them as well. And the effect on communities, it's, it's visceral and it's visible. And the issues people are facing, loss of homes, uh, livelihoods, sea level rise, coastal degradation, we've talked about the fish migration patterns, fishing and farming, and, and of course people having to relocate from some islands to other islands or to mainland. And, you know, one, one moment that stands out in particular was Vanuatu a couple of years ago, the, the volcanoes on Ambe, and that coupled with climate change and twice the island of Ambe was evacuated to, to a neighbouring island and working with the authorities on that, it's everything from relocating a population, making sure they're safe, but, but also their homes and property ownership and do people go back or do they, do they look for, for new livelihoods in their new in their new home and what about the children? Children really need to be in school and having kids in school is kind of the multiplier for sending any number of, of very positive messages of, for educating broader family and community as well. The gravitas of this, it's just really quite overwhelming. Arthur, maybe if I can bring you in here, you know, what, is, what is the UNDP's approach here in terms of concrete actions? Well, I, I think you'd be aware there's a coordinated approach across various United Nations departments, divisions, or agencies, and this this is far-reaching and ranging from from doing what can be done to bring together countries to discuss emissions reduction, therefore address the root cause of the problem. And you know, I think with with really quite limited success so far and uh, you know th this is a great disappointment to all of us but then you go across the whole gambit of disaster reduction and disaster management through to actual adaptation and that's 
looking at direct direct ways of of trying to assure the long-term sustainability of some of these communities in in the South Pacific and in this case Tuvalu and really there are extraordinarily limited options to us we either embrace quite extraordinary engineering for these small remote communities that haven't really seen this scale of engineering or we have to consider relocation as mentioned by Kristen and relocation is not a a simple conversation there are just extraordinary complexities to this the the interaction of people culture and place is something that simply can't be articulated um, in a few minutes uh, well, if you have an hour, perhaps. Is it really that binary? Relocation or massive construction projects almost to transform the look of these islands, I guess. For, for our low-laying communities, so all of your atoll communities and many of our high island communities that are in, that are in situations analogous to an atoll, really, in coastal zones, they face internal relocation or engineering where for our atoll communities, they face external relocation or huge engineering. And I can't stress this enough how, how urgent the situation is. We, we need to get cracking with these plans right now. Are we cracking on? We're trying. I, I guess the simplest way for me to put that is that until the world is willing to make the adaptation effort and resources commensurate with the scale of the challenge, we have real problems. We can have all the aspirations in the world, but ultimately only resources and effort are going to fix this problem. And I guess with limited budgets, we need to work smarter. We need to have a better understanding of the region and its needs so that we can maximise the impact of our efforts to help. Yeah, absolutely. One of the extraordinary things is that at a high level, a global level, a large regional level, we actually have some some fantastic climate change projections coming through these days. I mean, you know, we're light years ahead of where we were a couple of decades back. Now, that's great. But if you take this down to island level understanding, the first Pacific Island country ever an atoll country, sorry, to actually empirically determine the relationship between sea level and land height has been Tuvalu, and that was achieved in 2019. Up until then, we didn't have a single atoll location, and certainly not a country, where we had any idea of the empirical relationship between sea level and land height. It was all anecdote and guess. This is one of the one of the challenges, John, is that that this is remote part of the South Pacific, far away from from Europe, and the percentage of population it's it's a small, relatively small number of people, and and so when there is a disaster, a, a, a cyclone that comes through and and sweeps right across a low lying community, it barely makes the news in Europe or or in North America because the percentage of people is small compared compared with the populations in other parts of the world. Yet, yet the, the situation's real. Information is critical then. Are there any examples of how we've gathered valuable insights about the situation in the South Pacific? Sure. Look, look I think, um, you know, if we, if we get to 
the example of the mapping, the LIDAR mapping that was recently undertaken in Tuvalu to establish, uh, you know, a, a very accurate relationship between sea level and, and land height. In its most simple form, that's allowed us to do things like assist outer island um, councils, which are, you know, extremely small populations. You're talking 350 people on an island that's isolated, sees a ship maybe once every one and a half months or so. So they really don't have a lot of technical capacity in these places. But they are able to tell us, oh, we're planning a school in a certain area. And I can immediately look at that location and superimpose that over our land height information, for example. And we can see immediately whether or not that's an advisable location from the perspective of elevation and potentially exposure to wave hazards. So that we can give almost immediate information that's graphic and very easy to understand and allows that community to make better decisions you know, hopefully before they commit to actually building. Now, you know, these things sound so extraordinarily simple, but we just have not had the kind of choices to, to do this previously because we just didn't have the information. So, you know, we're able to do extremely simple things like that. Um, the example I just gave is a real example. Now, getting a little bit more complicated Plainly, if we want to design, say, a coastal defence system, which we are doing as well under our same project with UNDP in uh, Tuvalu, if we want to design those for certain return periods of storms, certain elevations in sea level, so looking out at time horizons for sea level rise, we have to have the fundamental baseline data to do that. And this kind of broad coverage of highly accurate data gives us exactly that. So, you know, it's no longer uh, trying to apply standards that don't really apply in these locations or making a best guess because it's so extraordinarily hard to get out there. We, we know to within centimetres what we need to design for. We know how long they will be good for, what their use-by date is, if you like. And that, that just allows huge confidence, um, planning, et cetera. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't gloss over the realities that a certain type of engineering may only last to a certain date. And then we've got to rethink and be prepared for that. You know, th this is all very pragmatic, <laughs> very sensible, very effective ways of doing things rather than uh, guesswork, if you like. A radar came out of the engineering sector, and we worked so closely with our engineering partners, uh, with with Arab, GHD, Fugro, really making sure that the the data informs the decisions and that that infrastructure, physical infrastructure, social infrastructure, that it that it it it's cognizant and inclusive of the voices of the communities, the resilience and and the needs of the community understanding how to build a disaster resilient infrastructure is absolutely critical informed by data arthur what kind of funding have you received to undertake your your, your work specifically the sea level positional work sure look we, we've been extremely fortunate in that we've won funding from gcf gcf that's sorry green climate fund so that that's international fund to support adaptation um, in, in developing nations uh, and essentially, that's given us resources to start to get to grips with some of these questions. And 
one of the first things we've realised that, like any situation, I mean, if this hasn't come home with the COVID pandemic, then it never will. We have to measure things in order to monitor and then manage them. And that's, that's exactly what we're doing here. We need to understand that these basic geophysical boundaries and baselines so that we can put into place the best possible, the most efficient, the most effective adaptation strategies. Unless you're guided by science, everything is is really, really difficult to bring home in an efficient way. If the pandemic hasn't taught us that, it's taught us nothing, has it really? You would hope. <laughs> but what the pandemic has taught us is that we can respond and we can be resolved and we can act in unity and we can effect change. And that brings us right back to, to our climate change conversation and the need to, to galvanise uh, to, to mobilise resources, galvanise action and to act in unity together. I get a sense that um, the responsibility for the Pacific Islands falls largely with Australia and it strikes me that, that, that you or your organisation or Australia carries the hopes of a lot of very vulnerable people. Well, I, I really believe that, that the future of the Pacific really belongs with the Pacific and with the Pacific Islands themselves and Australia and Australians and Red Art, we stand, we stand ready to work with and support our, our partners in the Pacific. The Pacific sent support to Australia when we had bushfires a, a couple of years ago and we support, uh, before, during and after climate events in the Pacific. Particularly, we, we see, we feel, we respond to, we work with our partners on the impacts of climate change. We've mentioned the coastal infrastructure uh, losses, land, intense cyclones and droughts and, and failure of crops and fisheries. We've talked a little bit about the, the losses of, of coral reefs, but also the mangroves. And then there's certain diseases that, that are becoming more prolific because of the effects of climate change. And there, there are biosecurity repercussions as well, coconut rhinoceros beetles, for, for example. So there's a lot for us to work with, but we're working with the Pacific governments and people to, to help beforehand, to bolster the preparedness side of things, to, to make sure that, like Arthur mentioned, that there is the data for us to make informed decisions and to, to ensure that the responses and preparedness plans are fit for an actual purpose. So I mentioned uh, in the in the last few years that we've had 75 of, of my team deployed and assisting in the Pacific. Perhaps one of the things that really comes to mind is we ran an Essentials of Humanitarian Practice course in Suva in September last year. So Melbourne was still all in lockdown. We we used some of our uh, Australian trainers based in Suva, but we also used Fijian trainers, and and we trained we trained local first responders in the essentials of a humanitarian response. Not just the the, the hard skills, the coordination, but also some of the the cross cultural, the the more inclusive, making sure that that the data is um, disaggregated, that the people who are the most vulnerable, so again, looking at older people, people with disabilities, women, that, that these folk are all included in, in any type of preparedness or response plan. And it was 
only a couple of weeks after we concluded that training with 34 Fijians that Cyclone Yasa came through. And all those good folk were able to put to work their, their newly acquired skills. And, and these, are, these are Pacific Islanders. They're responding to uh, a crisis in their, in their own space, which is how it should be. And I think that the key lead for climate change adaptation and mitigation in the Pacific should very much be the Pacific people because they're in the best place to respond. Where we can support we will support. Where we can mobilise resources, we, we will do that. But it's really the voices of the Pacific Islanders who know their countries, know their cultures, understand their needs and, and feel the day-to-day effects of, of the changing climate. Kirsten, you, you mentioned a coconut beetle there. Tell us more. Oh, it's more than a coconut beetle, John. It's the coconut rhinoceros beetle. And... Uh, <laughs> And it's a, it's a biosecurity threat in the Pacific. And if it's a biosecurity threat in the Pacific, it's a biosecurity threat to Australia and New Zealand. And it is, it is something that it, it has been a priority to try and control this pest. I had never heard of it before, but we received a priority request uh, from one of the UN agencies to urgently mobilise a, a coconut rhinoceros beetle expert. And uh, this was a, a number one priority for us for a, for a period of time, and we found one. She was in uh, she was in Fiji with the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, and we we begged forgiveness and relocated her rapidly to the Solomon Islands to uh, to do combat and to support the Solomons repelling this uh, this wicked pest. Very important work. Do you feel our response? has been sufficient to meet this challenge or is sufficient to meet the future challenges going forward? Look, the, the, the fact is the scale of these challenges are, are beyond imagination for a lot of these small countries to the extent it's quite overwhelming. And until, until we come to grips with that scale and actually think about the sorts of resources required to find real solutions that are in line with their aspirations, given the hand they dealt. Yeah, I, I think we, we, we have some real problems on our hands here. They, you know, if at the simplest, and, and really any disaster management person can tell you this, if people have to be relocated, it is infinitely better that it is a planned relocation. That, that it is discussed with a community, that we get consensus-driven ways of doing it. And you won't please everybody, you never can, but you can, if you're lucky, please the majority. However, the way we're presently going, we're going to allow the situation, the environmental stress in these islands, in some cases entire countries, to force our hand and make this an emergency removal of people. And to me, that's absolutely tragic and quite an unacceptable outcome. So that's a worst case scenario where people had to leave home. It would be so much better if we came to grips with things, realised the scale of the challenge that's required in terms of engineering to give, to give these people a safe home to live in, in, in their own countries. Are we still trying to recognize that this is the future uh, are we in denial still i spend most of my time in the pacific few pacific islanders are in denial about this i i think they struggle to picture the scale of the challenge but they they certainly are not 
in denial about the reality of climate change, it's impossible to be. Every major capital across the Pacific has a long-term, extremely well-maintained sea level gauge, and we watch these things march upwards year after year. There, there is no ambiguity in, in this. So for us, there's a known use-by date. It, it's really just, are we going to get serious about doing something about it beforehand? So if there's any ambiguity, I, th I think it lays in, uh, it certainly doesn't lay in our region. Uh, you, you, you kind of pointed to this earlier in your, in, in your introduction in that I think for many countries outside, the effects of climate change are not so immediately felt. And, and that, you know, it's a shame that we would have to wait for that to be the, the impetus for, for action. You, you could say similarly with, with problems with the ozone that, that, that you can't immediately feel the effects of, of a hole in the ozone. But, but we've made really substantive changes to the way we've treated that problem and we're improving the situation. So, again, I, I just think it's really is there the net political community will to deal with this problem. And I, I can only sincerely hope that there is, and I keep working towards that better end. Certainly from that political will perspective, the disaster risk mitigation and, and disaster risk reduction in the Pacific is a priority uh, for Australia. And certainly with our Australia Assist program over the last over the last year or so, we've we've had three deployments in Kiribati working on on the national emergency response plan and they were able to pivot to make sure that 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 national emergency response plan was fit for covid too and activated for a covid response in Vanuatu there've been 10 deployments supporting the national disaster management office again finalizing the legislative framework for adoption by parliament so that that can then be be mainstreamed and cascaded into the community to to build a an infrastructure and and a legislative architecture that will protect people and enable action. And in Fiji, 25 deployments which have improved the interoperability of emergency services to create joint response plans. And actually, those emergency services response plans are Pacific-wide for interoperability, but to build community resilience and enable stronger risk mitigation. Because the islands of the Pacific are so dispersed, it's really important to work together to have that interoperability and that and and it's the same with preparedness and response. This together though extends beyond those islands, doesn't it? I mean, we are talking, I'm hearing from Arthur, I'm hearing from you, it extends to us all on this planet. This isn't their problem, is it? No, that's right. That it, it in terms of climate change, it's it's all our problem. It's just in the Pacific, uh, like in Australia, the sun comes up earlier than it does in other parts of the world. And in this case, uh, ozone and, and climate change and the effects of climate change, we're feeling them first and we're feeling them hard. Kirsten, is there is there something on the on the immediate horizon, or maybe a little bit out there, which people can focus upon, work towards, so that we can get onto the same page or carry on the process of alignment. There's a there's a an Asia Pacific Disaster Risk Reduction Conference that I believe will be held next year, and it's been delayed because of COVID. 
and and that is certainly people coming together. There is political will. Uh, there is there is goodwill. But uh, I think uh, the time for us collectively to act is is now. And each of us in our in our own way within our sphere of influence and expertise, rather than wait for a conference and for for others, we can contribute to the messages. But I think for each of us, the time to act is now. This is what we're coming down to, isn't it? The time is now for action, Arthur. Yeah. Look, plainly, the, the time for action was 20 years ago. We are, we are on a certain trajectory now. And our choices are really about how bad we're willing to let this get. Okay? My feeling is we should do everything we can right now to start to rein in the impacts and reduce our adaptation costs ultimately and therefore make this all a little bit more manageable. What worries me is that we're headed for a bit of a double whammy here and that we're not necessarily reducing impacts and therefore making our adaptation costs so much larger. Now, I would particularly like to see far greater adaptation effort. I guess I'd I'd put the challenge out there name for me the long-term adaptation response in any of our atolls in the Pacific Ocean at this time? It's a rhetorical question, but I know what the answer is. I, I live it. There is one. It's in Tuvalu, and it's a small 7.5 hectares of raised land which has a design life out to the year 2100. Now, I can't speak to the ultimate acceptability of dates like that, but I can say that's it. That's the sum total of our long-term effort. And that's come about because Tuvalu was further further along the climate change crisis path than, than others, and that's what precipitated this particular adaptation process. The height of the land in an atoll is such that normal discussions around sea level or mean sea level, which is what we would uh, use in, say, a country like Australia, which is much higher, don't, don't really apply. We have to talk about land height in terms of land above mean spring high water levels. Yeah, because centimetres really do count. If we consider that, some 40% of, uh, for example, an atoll like Funafuti, the capital of Tuvalu, is already subtidal at spring high water, 40%. So that gives you a stark understanding of just how low-laying land is in these sorts of locations. Now, your highest elevations might come up to some four metres above high spring water, but that'll be associated with a storm ridge, and a storm ridge or storm berm is not a good place to live because that's obviously the first line of defence during a large tropical storm, and it's going to be overwashed with waves and um, wave-driven debris. So that very highest land, which is often quoted as the height of an atoll, is in fact not habitable land. In fact, it'd be quite foolhardy to live there. So the vast majority is actually less than a metre above high spring tide. And I think with that stark message, it's time to wind up this podcast. 
Thank you both for showing us just how critical and life-threatening the effects of climate change are for people in the South Pacific right now. These communities really are on the forefront of sea level rise and more intense weather, and they have life-changing decisions to make. It is quite clear that long-term adaption is essential and that this must be underpinned by facts that are clearly communicated. So let us all lobby those in authority, in business, political leaders and beyond and take action. What did you say? Act now, today. So until next time, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference.